This is Our American Stories, and we love talking about work, entrepreneurship, and taking care of each other. And this next story combines all of those things in a very special coffee shop, Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina. And it's run by people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who might otherwise not have a choice to work. And today we have on the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee with us, Amy Wright. Amy, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for that nice introduction, Lee. I'm glad to be joining you today. Well, Amy, before we get into the business, the idea, this beautiful story, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family, where you grew up, and and how you got to this place where you were thinking about doing something like this. Sure. Well, I was born in New Jersey, uh, but I spent very little time there. My family quickly moved on to Erie, Pennsylvania, where I spent... Uh, through fifth grade, we lived there, and then uh, my family decided to move south, and um, we settled in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I spent the rest of my years uh, through high school, and uh, I'm the oldest of five children, so we had a really, you know, fun upbringing, um, very tight-knit family, and I just I loved my childhood, and even back then, uh, my parents say I had quite the entrepreneurial spirit because <laughs> it was not uncommon for me to host weekend talent shows where the whole neighborhood would get involved or, um, you know, do little uh, lemonade stands uh, every weekend. So I always loved small business and um, just trying to try new things and involve my siblings. So that was that was my upbringing. Uh, when I decided to go to college, I wanted to major in musical theater. I was very uh, into the arts and ended up going to the Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, where I met Mr. Wright, I like to say, my husband, Ben Wright, and I met there during my senior year in college, and we just fell in love instantly. We were um, We met in September. We were engaged that New Year's Eve, and we married in May. And uh, after that, we moved directly to New York City because I wanted to pursue acting at that time. And and Ben had had a professional acting career prior to meeting me. And so um, moving back to New York City was a no-brainer for him as well. So we moved um, back to New York. Well, I moved for the first time. He moved back to New York. And um, we pursued acting careers and did that for a while and realized that we were spending more time apart than together because of different jobs that came up. And so uh, after about a year and a half of doing that, we decided we were going to settle down in the South, closer to my family, and um, have kind of a more typical life that way. And so we did that, and we hadn't been there but a few months when um, Ben's agent called from New York and said, do you want to... um, go on a national tour of a show called State Fair, which uh, he ended up playing the Pat Boone role in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, "He said, well, I'm interested, but I'm not leaving my wife again after having spent the first year and a half of our marriage apart from each other so much. So I ended up auditioning for the show, and we I got in the show, and we ended up traveling the country doing that. And the show actually ended up going to Broadway, and I had my little taste of Broadway, and... Um, 
kind of checked that box and said, okay, let's start a family. So <laughs> after that, we ended up back in North Carolina again and um, started raising a family. So, and when we ended up back in North Carolina at that point, we settled in Wilmington. So we've been here in Wilmington, North Carolina, just over 20 years and um, started our family here and, and um, have four beautiful children, um, two teenage daughters, one that's going off to college this fall. Uh, the second one is going to be a senior in high school. And and then uh, Bo was born, he'll be 13 in July, so um, he came along and, and then uh, five years later, his little sister, Jane, which we ended up calling Biddy because she's so itty-bitty. Um, so our kids range in age from 7 to 18, um, and I can, you know, share more about them, but I, I, feel, I don't want to ramble too much. Let me know. <laughs> feel no, free no, to tell, <laughs> tell, us, uh, you tell us a little bit about about the, the four of them, what they're interested yeah. in. Yeah, they're the joys yeah. of your life, and I think it's people who love yeah. life and love kids like you do that also love these special needs kids. So talk yeah. about those kids of yours. Yeah. So my kids are amazing. Um, b- before Bo was born, uh, Ben and I had had very little exposure to people with disabilities. You know, back when I was growing up, um, I, the kids who attended the public high school that I attended that had special needs were really um, kind of tucked away. And so you know, I look back on those years and I really feel like I missed out on forming some meaningful relationships with people who I would have been great friends with, but just had never been exposed to. And um, so when Bo came along and he was diagnosed with Down syndrome, Ben and I were paralyzed for a while because we hadn't really never known anybody with Down syndrome and were scared of what we didn't know. And spent, you know, a while educating ourselves about the diagnosis. And, you know, looking back on that, um, it was a very scary and um, (sighs) embarrassing time. You know, when I look back and I think about how we reacted at first because of what we didn't know. Mm -hmm. And um, the the interesting blessing um, that followed was that Biddy was born with Down syndrome too. And so um, by the time we had Biddy's diagnosis, you know, we were so excited because we knew what Down syndrome was and we knew what a blessing bow was in our lives. And we were ready and and just so excited that Biddy was joining our family too and that she also had Down syndrome. Well, when um, we come back, you hold that thought right there. When yeah. we come back, more with Amy Wright. And that's the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina. And already, folks, you're getting a a taste for the heart and the soul of this lady. And know that in this country, uh, the chances of a a young person uh, and a baby being diagnosed with Down syndrome and coming to live is very low. Uh, Upwards of 70% of kids are terminated before they're born. And we like to talk about that here on the show and educate people about the, the joys and beauty uh, that, that uh, kids who are born with disabilities uh, can bring to a family and to a community. This is Our American Stories. More with Amy Wright and her wonderful story after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we continue our conversation with Amy Wright. And we were talking with Amy about the birth of Bo and Biddy, both diagnosed with Down syndrome. She had two older children, Lily and Emma Grace. And so I think the first thing I wanted to talk about before we get to the coffee shop, Amy, is the in-between part. You, you find out these, the, these, these two children have Down syndrome. You learn from the first. The, the second's easier. How did your kids deal with this at first? And also your family and friends. Talk about the, the folks around your family and the reaction to these new children and the new challenges that they were bringing to the family and also the opportunities and blessings. Right. Well, interestingly, you know, Lily and Emma Grace were still quite young when Bo was born, and we made the decision that we weren't going to address the fact that Bo had Down syndrome with them out of the gate, because knowing that they didn't know anything about Down syndrome just as we didn't, we just wanted them to love him and and not be scared of what they didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so they spent the first, gosh, I mean, over a year we didn't talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome. Now, I will say, looking back on that, I kind of regret that because I think that it's really important to to talk about that and to, you know, to reframe how people feel about Down syndrome and other disabilities. But again, Ben and I were kind of still in that learning curve phase and weren't sure how our girls would deal with it. What we found was, you know, they loved Bo just, just because they, he was their brother, and it didn't it didn't matter, you know, when we did finally talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome, it didn't change anything. Maybe it even deepened their affection for him because they realized all that he had overcome um, because he was born with bilateral cataracts in both eyes and had gone through numerous eye surgeries as an infant. They were worried about things like that. They weren't worried about whether or not he had an extra copy of the 21st chromosome. Right. And then, you know, by the time we had the diagnosis with Biddy, they were, you know, overjoyed again, like Ben and I were, because we knew Down syndrome and we knew what we were getting into and we knew what a blessing this was going to be to have a second child with Down syndrome. You know, looking back, I think there were a lot of friends um, that kind of grieved as Bo was born and there was a lot of sadness and a lot of um condolences, which looking back again is kind of is ridiculous, but people around us didn't know Down syndrome either. And I think they were grieving the life that they thought we weren't going to have as we did for a little while. But just any time you spend time with Bo and Biddy, even as an infant, all of a sudden your perspective changes and you realize that it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. You know, this, this child is just created perfectly and beautifully, and um, there's so much to celebrate. We have found that anybody who spends time with our family, their hearts are changed. And so, you know, and I guess kind of leading to why we opened Biddy and Bo's Coffee Shop, we wanted to multiply that feeling. We wanted other people to experience not only our kids, but everybody else that has an intellectual disability so that someday when that parent welcomes their baby into the world and the doctor comes in and says they have Down syndrome, that they don't have that reaction Ben and I had when we welcomed Bo because they know what Down syndrome is. They've been to Biddy and Bo's Coffee. They've met somebody there that works um, that has just opened their eyes to 
a whole new world. Um, and so that that's kind of our greatest motivator in, in creating this coffee shop is changing the way people feel about people with disabilities. It almost sounds like a ministry for you. You know, I, I, I meet yeah. people and I tell them all the time they're creating ministries. And it doesn't have to be a church and a steeple. It's just it has to do with love. It has to do with bringing people together and very, very often getting people to see something they might not have seen before through that power of love. And I just, I'm still, I mean, I'm, I'm practically in tears because it's, and not sad tears, just tears of, of joy that you yeah. get watching, watching just something beautiful happen. Talk about yeah. that day-to-day coffee shop experience. Talk about what you see each day. By the way, who makes the place run? I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah. And who are the customers? Well, the place is completely run by people with intellectual disabilities. So we have employees that have autism, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. We have all, you know, all kinds of diagnoses. But they are so capable and they are hardworking and they have learned their jobs so thoroughly that they run this shop completely self-sufficiently. So someone will take somebody's order. Somebody else will make the beverages. Somebody else will um, call out the order when it's ready or deliver it to the table. Um, somebody might be greeting people at the door, but um, they are a well-oiled machine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we have tons of regular customers that come in and have formed relationships with our team. Um, you know, lots of hugs and high fives all the time. But then we also have this interesting phenomenon of people that are traveling from all over the country some from outside our country, to come experience what's going on here because it's really special. That's always a thrill for our team, too, to see, you know, how people, you know, maybe for the first time in their lives, not only are they being treated with respect, but they're they're being treated like celebrities, you know, like they, <laughs> like heroes. And, yep. uh, you know, they, people recognize them. They come in with their cameras and they want to get pictures and autographs with our team. It is amazing how that changes the way somebody feels about themselves when they feel valued. You're no doubt about it. And what a better way to express that through this coffee shop. And you you don't have a a drive-through, and I found that fascinating. And what's the reason for no drive-through? Yeah, well, we just want the the whole motivation behind this is to bring people together and to have that experience of spending time with somebody that's different from you. And so you can't really achieve that as well in a drive through Sure, there's that quick moment, but this is a, the kind of place where you come in and you have a conversation and you see walls start to come down and you see relationships start to form. And so it's very intentional. We don't have a drive through um, Of course, that would boost our business if we did, but we we just do things differently here. And, um, you know, people will line up, people will line up out the door on the weekend just to come in here and experience this. That's a beautiful thing. Tell me, uh, if, you, if you can, a favorite story uh, that our audience would love to hear uh, from sure. that coffee shop. Well, I mean, one of my favorites is that there um, was a young couple that came in uh, months ago and were sitting at our counter and she was pregnant and um, one of our employees, Elizabeth, who has Down syndrome, was behind the bar, and she's just so loving. Anyway, she was hugging the mom and, you know, just being real sweet with them. And um, as the as the mom left, the pregnant young woman left, she said, um, 
you know, this baby we're expecting has Down syndrome too. And, uh, you know, it still gives me goosebumps to talk about because I think that's just such a wonderful experience for her to have had, to have spent that time with Elizabeth and have her fears maybe dissolved, you know, to see. I mean, I remember when Bo was born wondering, would Bo ever walk? Would he talk? You know, what would he achieve? Things that you you start worrying about as a parent. And for, for that young mother to sit there and see Elizabeth not only walking and talking, but holding a job and earning a paycheck and being trusted with responsibility, I mean, that had to have been life-changing for that mother. Yep, no doubt. And and with a minute or two left that we have, talk to anybody out there who is in that position right now. They're, they're pregnant. They've found out that their child's going to have a severe learning disability. Talk to that mom directly if you can. I just would say that, you know, we all have obstacles. We know as life goes on that things can happen to us and and change us, whether that is physically or emotionally or spiritually, and it, it will come when you least expect it. The thing about getting a diagnosis when your child is born is that you're kind of handed that playing card and, and you know what you're up against, but the reality is, you know, I have all kinds of obstacles I face with my teenage daughters that don't have intellectual disabilities, but there are challenges we face. Bo and Biddy, I kind of knew because with Down syndrome, I knew what some more specific challenges would be, but it, they're no different than any other child that, that you raise. You're going to face moments when things are tough. You're going to face all kinds of celebrations, but, you know, the fact that God created each of us perfectly and wonderfully, and there is, he doesn't make mistakes, and and the way that Bo and Biddy were created was quite intentional, and, um, you know, we just have to learn to embrace differences. I think as a nation, we need to do that more, you know, it's just, we, we need to recognize that each of us was created perfectly and beautifully in our own way and um, and just love one another. And I think that's the greatest lesson I've learned through raising Biddy and Bo. This is Our American Stories. And if you want to see and hear more of what we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And again, thank you, Amy Wright. And what a message of love. What a story. And it doesn't get better than that, folks. This is Our American Stories, and our next story comes to us from a man who's simply known as the History Guy. His videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages on YouTube. The History Guy is also heard right here on Our American Stories. Today, the History Guy remembers rubles, cola, and a kitchen that changed history. It is a forgotten moment during the Cold War that deserves to be remembered. Here's the History Guy. Soft drinks are hard business. The total worldwide beverage market value in 2018 was estimated at $2.2 trillion. The Coca-Cola company's net operating revenues in 2016 were over $40 billion. The industry is so lucrative that it represents one of the longest-lasting wars in modern history. The Cola Wars. 
While beverage industry giants Pepsi and Coke have been competing since their creation in the 19th century, the Cola Wars refer to particularly aggressive advertising against each other since the 1980s. That war took an odd turn in 1990 when PepsiCo purchased a fleet of warships. Yes, actual warships that gave them at the time the sixth largest submarine navy in the world. That odd event had to do with the peculiarities of the world's second oldest national currency, the most significant world conflict of the post-World War II era, and a visionary businessman. It is a story that deserves to be remembered. The ruble offered a unique challenge for the Bolsheviks following the Russian Revolution. In Marx's theory, money should not be necessary and only encouraged the sort of personal desire that was contrary to the idea of a classless society. As Leon Trotsky explained, in a communist society, the state of money will disappear. But the Marxist revolutionaries realized that abolishing money would not be easy, as Trotsky continued. Money cannot be arbitrarily abolished, nor the state and the old family liquidated. They have to exhaust their historic mission, evaporate, and fall away. But while the Soviets kept the ruble, an important aspect of the new Soviet ruble, as opposed to most national currency, is that the ruble was not convertible. That is, Russians were not allowed to use their rubles to buy foreign currencies. There's a reason for this. In capitalist countries, currency is a market. In fact, its purpose is to support market mechanisms. But in the Soviet Union, currency was a tool of centralized planning. With non-convertible currency, Russians could only use the money that they were paid to buy from government stores that only sold products sanctioned by the government with prices set by the government. This difference in economic philosophy would be a primary driver of the defining conflict of the period following the Second World War, the Cold War, and it would become the topic of a well-known debate that would eventually result in a novel challenge to the convertibility of the ruble. And that famous debate would occur in a kitchen. During a period of rising tensions, the Eisenhower administration and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev decided to have a cultural exchange to promote understanding between the two nations. Each nation would host an exhibition in the other's country, showcasing the daily life of their citizens. The Soviet exhibition was held in New York in June of 1959, and the American exhibition was held in Moscow in July. For their exhibition, the Americans built a model home, meant to represent a typical American home. The model home was based on an actual house, 398 Town Line Road in Comac, Long Island. For the exhibition, the model was split down a central hallway to allow the public to view the inside and thus earn the nickname Splitnik, and it included a model kitchen full of modern appliances. And it was there that Soviet Premier Khrushchev and U.S. Vice President Richard Nixon got into an impromptu debate about the relative value of their competing economic systems that became known as the Kitchen Debate. The kitchen debate is interesting for a number of reasons, but it was notable that, in the middle of a tense Cold War, it was not a debate about armies and rockets, but of homes and tractors and kitchens and how each system provided for its citizens. It was certainly pointed, but cordial, and became a propaganda point for both sides. Not many minds were changed, as Khrushchev summarized, I am a lawyer for communism. You are a lawyer for capitalism. Let's kiss. But during that debate, a particular capitalist was watching closely. Donald M. Kendall was the vice president of marketing for Pepsi-Cola, which had a booth at the American National Exhibition just around the corner from the famous kitchen. While soda was popular in America, it was virtually unknown in the Soviet Union. 
Kendall saw opportunity in that market and had been desperate to get Khrushchev to take a drink of Pepsi. As the debate grew heated, both literally and figuratively, Khrushchev began to sweat, and Kendall dropped in with a cold cup of Pepsi. The photo op was a marketing coup. But it would be nearly a decade before Don Kendall could take advantage of that opportunity. By 1968, he was the CEO of PepsiCo, and his friend, Richard Nixon, had been elected President of the United States. Leveraging his White House connection, Kendall was able to negotiate an exclusive contract to produce and sell Pepsi-Cola behind the Iron Curtain. But there was a problem. The Soviet ruble. Since the ruble was non-convertible, the Soviets had very little foreign currency to pay for that Pepsi-Cola, and rubles had no value outside the Soviet Union. The answer came in the form of a trade. In exchange for selling soft drinks in the Soviet Union, Pepsi got the rights to sell hard liquor to the West. Pepsi was paid in vodka. Specifically, Stolichnaya, a premium brand produced in Russia that had won a gold medal in an international competition in 1953. Pepsi was given exclusive right to sell Stolichnaya outside the Soviet Union. Pepsi became the first Western consumer item to be manufactured and sold in the Soviet Union, and Stolichnaya became the first premium vodka to be imported for sale in the United States. The deal was struck in 1972, but production did not start until 1974, and that started the 15-year exclusive contract that shut rival Coca-Cola out. But when it came time to renew the contract in 1989, the situation in the Soviet Union had changed. Mikhail Gorbachev had become the premier in 1985 and had instituted significant reforms called glasnost and perestroika, or openness and restructuring. The Soviet economy was facing challenges as a result, and Gorbachev was supporting more connection between markets. Pepsi was only too happy to expand, looking to increase from 26 factories in the Soviet Union to 50, but the ruble was still not convertible and would not be for many years and the $3 billion deal was simply too big to be paid in vodka. So the Soviets sold them something of which they had an excess. Warships. Specifically, a cruiser, a destroyer, a frigate, and 16 submarines. At the time, PepsiCo had the sixth largest submarine navy on Earth. Don Kendall, then chairman of the PepsiCo executive board, quipped to U.S. National Security Advisor Brent Scowcroft, that we are disarming the Soviets faster than you. The kitchen debates and the national expositions actually represented a relative thaw in U.S.-Soviet relations, but in 1960, a U.S. U-2 spy plane was shot down over the Soviet Union and relations sank to a new low. The Cold War would continue for another three decades. Donald M. Kimball became the CEO of Pepsi-Cola in 1963 and didn't retire from that position until 1985 and then continued as chairman of the executive board till 1991. In addition to his deal to sell Pepsi behind the Iron Curtain, he shepherded the company through the merger with Frito-Lay that created PepsiCo Inc. The 96-year-old is now retired and lives in Washington State. The modest ranch house at 398 Townline Road in Comac, Long Island, that was the model for the 1959 American National Exposition, is still there, although the famous kitchen has been remodeled. Making the ruble convertible was not an easy feat. The Soviet ruble was replaced by the Russian ruble in 1992, but significant marketing and banking reforms were required to make the currency convertible. It was not made fully convertible in 2006. As the ruble was tied to Russia's energy trade, its value has been volatile, but many argue that it is set to become a larger player in currency markets that are becoming less dependent on the U.S. dollar.
No, Pepsi did not use its submarines to sink cargo ships carrying Coca-Cola. They were actually sold for scrap, just another barter. But it is ironic that at the very center of the Cold War, the lawyer for communism would take a sip out of a cup bearing one of the world's most recognized symbols of capitalism. And as a result, Pepsi would play a notable role more than three decades later in the end of that Cold War, right down to breaking up the weapons of war and selling them for scrap. The day that Pepsi got a Navy deserves to be remembered. And special thanks to the history guy. History deserves to be remembered. And you can find all of his work at YouTube, and we treasure our partnership. And again, that is the history guy. And all of our history stories, by the way, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the place you can go to learn all that's beautiful in life and all that's good in life, including our nation's founding. And, of course, classic literature, the old kind, the kind that used to be studied at colleges across this country. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. That's hillsdale.edu. They're free and terrific online courses are available for all who listen. If you've got some history stories like this, family stories, town stories, state stories, send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. The Cold War, the Cola Wars, the story of Pepsi, and the ruble, all of it here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories. And as you know, we tell stories about everything here. But our very favorite stories, well, they come from our nation's warriors. And on the 5th of December in 2012, Afghan Taliban fighters known for killing and kidnapping for ransom got their hands on an American civilian doctor working with an aid organization. U.S. intelligence zeroed in on where Dr. Joseph was being held and a rescue team was soon on the way. Helicopters inserted the SEALs into the mountainous region, and the men hiked for more than four hours in the dark to reach their target. For what happened next, then-senior Chief Edward C. Byers, Jr. would earn our nation's highest award for valor, the Medal of Honor. Here is the citation. The President of the United States, in the name of the Congress, has taken pleasure in awarding the Medal of Honor to Chief Special Warfare Operator C. Air Land, Edward C. Byers, Jr., for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty 
as a hostage rescue force team member in Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom from 8 to 9, December 2012. As the rescue force approached the target building, an enemy sentry detected them and darted inside to alert his fellow captors. The sentry quickly re-emerged and the lead assaulter attempted to neutralize him. Chief Byers with his team sprinted to the door of the target building. As the primary breacher, Chief Byers stood in the doorway fully exposed to enemy fire while ripping down six layers of heavy blankets fastened to the inside ceiling and walls to clear a path for the rescue force. The first assaulter pushed his way through the blankets and was mortally wounded by enemy small arms fire from within. Chief Byers, completely aware of the imminent threat, fearlessly rushed into the room and engaged an enemy guard aiming an AK-47 at him. He then tackled another adult male who had darted towards the corner of the room. During the ensuing hand-to-hand -hand struggle, Chief Byers confirmed the man was not the hostage and engaged him. As other rescue team members called out to the hostage, Chief Byers heard a voice respond in English and raced toward it. He jumped atop the American hostage and shielded him from the high volume of fire within the small room. While covering the hostage with his body, Chief Byers immobilized another guard with his bare hands and restrained the guard until a teammate could eliminate him. His bold and decisive actions under fire saved the lives of the hostage and several of his teammates. By his undaunted courage, intrepid fighting spirit, and unwavering devotion to duty in the face of near certain death, Chief Petty Officer Byers reflected great credit upon himself and upheld the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. That first American assaulter who was mortally wounded was 28-year-old Nick Check. After making sure that all the hostiles were down and the American hostage was safe, Chief Byers tried desperately to resuscitate his brother both on the ground and throughout their 40-minute-long flight back to their base. Check was posthumously awarded our nation's second-highest award for valor, the Navy Cross. And Chief Byers, as you heard, earned the Medal of Honor. Here is Chief Byers, who, by the way, remained on active duty, addressing a crowd gathered to induct him into the Pentagon's Hall of Heroes. Good afternoon, everyone. I've realized throughout my life that time is the most precious commodity you have, and I sincerely thank you all for your time today. I will speak just long enough to give credit and recognition to the heroes in my life and to those who deserve to know that they are the reason that I'm standing here today. Those heroes are my family, my faith, and the brotherhood. Family is the reason I'm able to do this job. And it's also the reason to live and to return home safely. Madison, my incredible wife. Hannah, my beautiful daughter. This could not have been possible without your resiliency and love. Your strength in my absence is something I've always admired and respected. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. I will never forget how each time I returned home from long times away, You'd be waiting to pick me up, sometimes in the middle of the night, waiting to give me a hug and a kiss, especially you, Hannah. I would not be the man I am if it were not for the two of you. You are my heroes. I love you. Hand in hand with my family is my faith. While it has had a more quiet aspect of my life, it has always played a significant role. 
I grew up Catholic and continue to grow in my faith, thanks especially to my brother, Trevor. He taught me to turn my heart and soul towards Christ when I have strayed or lost my way. Prayer has always provided calm amidst chaos for me. On my first deployment to Iraq some 11 years ago, I arrived in country and I saw another SEAL standing there with him, St. Michael the Archangel patch on his shoulder. I'm not sure what drew me to it, but I walked up to him and asked him if I could have it. He was leaving the combat zone and made it through a safe deployment. He handed it to me without hesitation. I've worn a patch on my kit on every single mission I've ever been a part of. And I prayed the St. Michael prayer while moving in the toughest missions I've faced. And it does start by saying, St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our protection. On that day in December 2012, the day you heard recounted several times about my team and the way we carried out the mission to rescue American hostage, on that day, just like every day, I prayed. I prayed on the way to my target, and again I prayed over my brother Nicholas Check for his soul as he gave his life to save another American. Nick Check was a warrior, a brother, and a friend. I know I said this repeatedly since this has started, but this award is inseparable from his death. Nick embodied the brotherhood. Nick embodied what it meant to be a Navy SEAL. He was hard as nails, resilient. He had a never quit, never fail mentality. Nick, along with the rest of our team, carried out some of the most difficult and dangerous missions our nation could have asked us to do. Nicholas Check paid the ultimate sacrifice, doing what he loved on the battlefield because this is what brothers do. They will lay down your life for you if they have to. We are again reminded this morning of the continued sacrifices the men and women of our nation make. The hotel where many of our sustain overlooks Washington, D.C., the Pentagon, and Arlington National Cemetery. I, along with many of my teammates, have been to many funerals at Arlington, probably more than we should at our age and our life. We've seen too many good men buried. So many may ask, what is it that keeps you going? How are you standing here after such loss? The answer is, undoubtedly, without question, the brotherhood. I say the brotherhood for last. I want to emphasize that I'm no different than any one of my teammates. I'm certain that any one of them would have taken the same exact actions I did that day. I've seen countless heroics acts in my time working with the nation's most elite operators. I feel a sense of responsibility with the recognition that has been bestowed upon me. My brothers who are still fighting, who are still in the shadows, deserve to share the spotlight. Where we are a community of quiet professionals and those men would not expect or seek recognition for their actions. I proudly wear this trident to represent the Brotherhood. And now I've been welcomed into another group of exceptional military heroes. I look at the names in the Hall of Heroes and to the brave men right in front of me here and realize the tremendous amount of bravery that flows through our American veins. 
Freedom is in large part paid by blood, sweat, and tears. I've never imagined my life would leave me here. I'm truly humbled and honored to represent the Navy and the Naval Special Warfare community. My only desire is that my representation is something my brothers who I serve with would be proud of. Because the deed is all, not the glory. May God bless you, and may St. Michael the Archangel protect our warriors in battle, along with the Brotherhood. Thank you. And you were listening to Navy SEAL Master Chief Edward Byers, Jr., and that's what our fighting men sound like. The humility, it's there, you can hear it. He doesn't even want to be there. He really doesn't. He has to be, because it's in order. But he knows that he doesn't act alone. And the Brotherhood is the reason. Talk to any of these guys. It's more than country, actually. You really get to know them. Obviously, they love their country. But what they do and why they do it, it's because their brother would have done it, too. It's why we always cry when we hear these stories. The deed is all, not the glory. And we could say that every day before we start the day. And we'd all have better lives especially in this Instagram, Facebook, fame culture. It's so empty, and we all know it. Navy SEAL Master Chief Edward Byers' story, every soldier's story, here on Our American Story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And we tell you all kinds of stories from all walks of life as it relates to business and the arts, big, big names in history. But we love bringing you the small stories, too, because in our mind, they're all important. They're all relevant, and sometimes the small ones speak to us better than the big ones do. We bring you this show, by the way, from a small town in Mississippi called Oxford, home of Ole Miss. And while we talk to people of all kinds from all over this great country, sometimes we like to bring you stories from people in our neck of the woods, our little town. And so we bring you the story of Ron Lakey, the owner of Ron's Music Center, a small but thriving music store right here. In Oxford, this is Pure Americana. I'm Ron Lakey. Uh, my home is Oxford, Mississippi. My hometown is Ashland, Mississippi. Ashland was the, when I was growing up, I went to school there for an extended education. I went to high school about for... Uh, 14 years, so uh, I got a lot of education in Ashland. And uh, looking back, uh, we had the greatest teachers. We had a great school. Uh, we, we turned out some really smart people there. Uh, I found out 
in testing in later years that uh, that they even taught me a lot. My mom and dad uh, both worked very hard um, all of my life un- until I got to be 17 or 18 years old. And uh, after that, they still did work hard, but they went from uh, working for the public, working for other people, to having their own uh, grocery business for their normal standard of living. They had they worked themselves right on up. The community loved them. They were just great parents to me. I'm sure I ran them crazy. I have a brother and a sister. Because my granddad had been uh, a former sheriff of that county, uh, I had a lot of access to stuff that he had taken off of people during his four years of service. He just had an old cigar box full of things like straight razors and knuckles, you know, lead knuckles and aluminum knuckles and that sort of thing. And, uh, and I've always been a, you know, I used to trade anything in school, you know, and, uh, we'd trade pocket knives and come up with things like cigarette lighters and all that stuff. And grandpa had just kind of turned all that stuff over to me and uh and i was trading it off and i got caught trading a set of knuckles off (laughs) one of mine was made out of uh, babbitt lead which it was for lead it was uh, old lead knuckles you know it they weren't soft and they were heavy and the other one was really nice cast aluminum and uh looked it looked neat. I just traded, either sold them, traded for another knife or something like that. But uh, the janitor there told on me and the guy that was getting them. And boy, in no time, our principal was on the horn, and, and he called Ryan Lakey and Tommy Curtis to the office. And, and uh, it was real serious, and he looked serious, and uh, he decided he needed that that wasn't enough. He needed to take me home to show my dad and my granddad what kind of sins I was committing at school. <laughs> and and both of them already knew about that. Mr. White took those knuckles and went through a dramatic spill with Dad and Grandpa and he gave those to them and took me back to school. That night at supper, I thought I was really in trouble, you know. But after supper and everybody else had cleared the table, Dad reached in his pocket and he said, Here, don't get in trouble with them things. <laughs> and he gave, you know, he gave them, gave them back to him. He said, Just don't get in trouble with them. So okay, but you know, we didn't fight at school. We didn't fight after school. I mean, it was everybody got along, and uh, school was fun. It was it was cool to have a car. There probably weren't there probably were not twelve students that came to work to school in a car. I quit school. 
because I didn't have a car and I went out and got a factory job, earned enough to buy a cheap car. My uncle saw that I needed a car, and he had a cool little Austin Ailey Sprite, and he sold it to me for $500. And that was a lot of money then, but it was a wonderful buy and a wonderful opportunity. And so for my last year in high school, I had Austin Ailey Sprite, so we were... It was neat to have a car, and, and still there weren't 12 cars in school. And you've been listening to Ron Lakey, and his story is, well, it's a story from right here in our little town of Oxford, and we'd love to hear your stories, too. And as you can tell, we just stay out of the way, and we ask a few open questions, but you don't hear us in these stories. We want to hear from Ron and his life. Send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and it doesn't have to be yours if it's someone in town you think's interesting. Well, we'll tell their stories for you. Again, send the stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Contact us. Our producers will be in touch. We'll send some recording gear your way with a little sheet with some basic questions. And the rest is, well, easy. Again, Ron Lakey's story here on Our American Stories, the owner of Ron's Music Center in our beautiful and small and not perfect town, but good town of Oxford, Mississippi. More after these messages. Turn to Our American Stories and the story of Ron Lakey, the owner of Ron's Music Center right here in Oxford, Mississippi. Let's continue with Ron's story. A buddy of mine and I joined the Navy in 1966 and went to boot camp in California, San Diego. Went aboard a ship from the West Coast, the USS Galveston. It was a guided missile light cruiser. After we got on it, went to the East Coast, went to the Mediterranean uh, to be the flagship for the Admiral in the Mediterranean in 67. We went down through the Panama Canal and came out on the other side, went to Newport, Rhode Island, and then through really bad hurricane weather as we went around Cape Hatteras. We went from the U.S., Palma, Mallorca was our first stop. Then we were in several cities in that part of the world over there. Of course, we were in Naples, Italy, and uh, we were in Sicily, a couple of towns in France, and we went to Barcelona, Spain, uh, and a lot of that. But at that time, the interesting thing about that time was in 67 was uh, when the Israeli were having problems, you know. They had neighboring countries that were trying to be at war at, with them as they are today. In the middle of that, there was a ship, our ship, that the Israeli attacked. They uh, 
they hit it with torpedo boats and uh, put two or three torpedoes in it and killed 32 men on board. It was a mistake. That ship was moved to Valletta, Malta, and my friend and I were able to go to that ship and go on board that ship and and see the reality of that. And, uh, you know, when you're 20 years old, that was a big impression. And uh, the ship was pretty pretty messed up, and uh, uh, we had to smell human flesh all the time that we were on that ship and it was that was pretty tough and just pretty memorable and in 1968 I got orders to go to Vietnam Uh, we trained in California to teach us the reality of what we would be into then 40 miles south of Saigon there was an attachment there called the Mobile Riverine Force. And uh, I was in that Mobile Riverine Force on a boat, pretty well armored boat. Each boat had a about a seven-man crew, a boat captain, which would be an enlisted man, and then the driver, or coxswain, which was me. It was a skeleton crew, but we were pretty heavily armed. My boat carried 1,100 gallons of gasoline bladder in the well deck. And, you know, the rivers over there just use like, you know, there's rivers that qualify as expressway and there's rivers that qualify as a dirt road, you know. And uh, we had to travel through those areas. You could real easy be in a firefight. My boat was really blessed there would be convoys that would go through these areas and get hit. And then our turn, they would forewarn us and give us all the intel. And we'd go through and come out on the other side clean. And uh, it was just like trouble till we went through. And then after we went through, trouble (laughs) for everybody else. But it was a really good experience. I wouldn't take anything for having gone over there. I know the good things that we did over there. I know the humane things that we did over there. I went to work as a purchasing agent for a mobile home factory. I went to work in Memphis in 73 and sold cars. Went to New Orleans, sold cars. Went back to Memphis, sold cars. And then in 1975, I had a very serious wreck which rendered me legally blind. I don't have any sight in my left eye. I've got, you've heard about the guy that's blind in one eye and can't see out of the other. Well, that's me. I had worked all my life and I enjoyed working. And uh, it slowed me down uh, a lot. It put me in a position that I had never been in before. You know, because of the severity of the accident, I wound up spending 45 days in the hospital and had brain surgery because the accident busted my brain. But once they relieved everything, uh, relieved the pressure, everything fell back in place and healed. 
it was nothing to sneeze at. It it took me a year till I had strength like I should, because I had gone from like 205 pounds, uh, but I lost down to about 140 pounds, and so had a lot of strength to rebuild and uh, to adapt to my blindness. I didn't want to sit around all my life, and uh, so there was the choice. You either figure out what you're going to do, and or you just sit around and don't do anything, and I couldn't do that. I got out of the hospital in January 76, and uh, it took me from there till 78 to figure out what was I going to do. I did go to the Center for the Blind in Jackson, Mississippi, which was a, which was a great facility, great people. Uh, I learned more about mobility. My counselor wanted them to see me because uh, if they wanted to invest in me, they want, he wanted them to know what they were looking at. And so I spent about 12 weeks down there. Uh, it was a great help for me. And uh, out of frustration for finding a set of strings in the Holly Springs one weekend. Next time I told him, I said, I guess if I could do anything I wanted to do, I'd open a music store. And he uh, he said, I know a little about that. And so we kind of pursued that. Got a little SBA loan. Vocational rehab uh, gave me a $5,000 grant just a gift so I bought that old store out it had about a $5,000 inventory $5,021 is a fact and uh, I had 5000 so I went <laughs> I went into business $21 in the hole so <laughs> maybe I've dug out by now I've been doing this this year in May will have been 40 years and you're listening to Ron Lakey, and if you can, well, if you can see what we're up to, it's simple. We should be listening to each other more. And right in your own community, there are people with unbelievable stories. You don't have to go to the movies, folks. Uh, our real lives are, well, maybe more interesting than anything we can see on the screen. I mean, imagine this, this guy who you probably walk in and out of a music store, you know people like this, in 1968, there he is in Vietnam. And as he put it, his boat was just blessed. Others ran into trouble. His would get through unscathed, and then others would run into trouble. But he said some good came of it. And that is an American voice. You're hearing 45 days in a hospital after a car wreck, brain surgery, all kinds of troubles, healing, losing weight. And what does he want to do? Well, he doesn't want to sit around and complain. He wants to have a life. I didn't want to sit around all my life. I couldn't do that, Ron Lakey said. It took a few years to figure out what I wanted to do. $5,000 loan. $5,000 of inventory in this little music store, and he starts his own business, 21 bucks in the hole, but filled with optimism and filled with hope for his own future. Ron Lakey's story here on Our American Stories. And again, we really were looking for you to, to share your stories with us and send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And get in conversations with your neighbors, and whatever you do, don't talk about politics. Because there's so many things that unite us. And, well, that just doesn't happen to do it. And we try to avoid all that stuff here on this show. 
keep things positive, keep things, well, on an even tone. Talk to a neighbor, send a neighbor's story our way to ouramericannetwork.org. When we come back, we'll finish up with Ron Lakey's story from our beautiful but not perfect town here just about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee, in Oxford, Mississippi, home of Ole Miss and home of Our American Stories. Turn to the story of Ron Lakey, owner of Ron's Music Center here in Oxford, Mississippi. Let's continue with his story. If you could fill up one hand, five fingers with friends that are really sincere friends, you're very fortunate. That's friends through thick and thin. I can do that. A friend of mine called me that I had not seen in 40 years. My wife says, I think it's a telemarketer. It says on the phone, Dave Love. Took the phone. He said, is this Ronald Lakey? I said, it is. He said, were you in the Navy? And I said, hell, Dave, we were in there together. You knew that. You have to ask me. <laughs> and it kind of it kind of blew him away. Maybe he didn't think I would remember him or I don't know what, but he was just trying to make sure he had the right guy. But he and I sat down and talked over the phone for I don't know how long, but everything he asked, you know, everything he said, I could add something to it. And we learned about all of our guys. The next year, we had a reunion in Memphis of that of our division on that ship. But in the meantime, we had located other guys, and we had communicated. I was talking to one of those guys. I said, you know, after we did this, I said, I had so many memories. He said, yeah. And I said, and we were tight. I said, I didn't realize till I met with these guys again how tight we really were in that division. I said, we were, we were tight. He said, yeah, Ron. He said, we were 18, 19, 20 years old. We'd never been anywhere. We never, most of us never been in a big city. And here we are on a, sh- we come out of 400 population town. We're on a ship with 900 men on it. And we go to San Diego and uh, and Long Beach and we're in Los Angeles. We were dumped out there, and we kind of had to stick together because we were all we had. <laughs> and, and you never, you didn't think about that then, but truthfully, that was what we had. We just had each other. <laughs> <laughs> 
was what we had. We just had each other. I enjoy coming. I enjoy coming to work every day. I'd like to work less. You know, I'd I'd rather work about three days a week. But uh, when you're in business and you have employees and you have big bills to pay and that sort of thing, you work. I enjoy that. We are mostly Christian-based in Mississippi. I was saved as a young kid, you know, when I was about 11 or 12. When I woke up in the hospital and I didn't have a clue about where I was and I didn't know that my eyesight was bad, the doctor had a real deep voice and, and he brought me out of my sleep. He said, Son, can you hear me? And I said, yes, sir. Thoughts start running through my mind. I couldn't put anything together. And he said, do you know where you are? And I said, God, I hope I'm in a hospital. Because <laughs> I knew how I'd been living, you know, because I was cutting a pretty wide strip about that time. And uh, he said, you're right, you're in a hospital. And I realized right then that I spiritually was not in good shape if I was not in a hospital and should I die. And when I came to that realization, after I went through the things that I went through in the hospital, but after that, I knew that God was looking out for me and that he had allowed me to live. He's made things happen for me. I've had a lot of prayers answered. I can see them. I've seen them being answered. Many years have come and gone. Since he walked upon this ground They say lives don't last so long So why's his story hanging round And why do people stop and pray To a man that's dead and gone when I ask them, they just say He's coming back to take me home Anybody here want to live forever? Say I do Anybody here want to walk on golden streets? Say I do Is anybody here sick and tired of living like you do? Anybody here want a home with love forever? Say I do. It's just, it's just a little old song that I sang at church sometimes. You can tell immediately that it came out of a liquor store. <laughs> that's that's and, uh, wow, listen to that. Can you do that again? <laughs> yeah. It's got a good bell, doesn't it? It's a nice. It is.
it's a neat piece. A lot of folks like that. I think it's a 1944. Luis has been with me in the store since he graduated. He came highly recommended, and he's been a blessing to me, and I rely on him heavily. I'm uh, just working on this Ibanez. This one has a, uh, it's got one of these floating floor rust tremolos, so sometimes a little hard to adjust because if you're, when you tune in, you know, you got a certain amount of tension on the neck, so it'll, it might pull it up too, too far up, which raises your action. This one's actually rattling, so you kind of, kind of have to adjust the tension on the spring, so you just play with it so you get it just right. He started here in May five years ago. So five years and almost five months, and and I like it. It's, it's, it's something that there's always something new coming out with uh, sound systems, and you're always learning something. Uh, which kind of helps my brain. So we get guitars that are nice guitars that <laughs> customers have that cost a lot of money, and they get breaks or cracks and that sort of thing. I knew everything to do, but Luis can take <laughs> it to the next level. One because of his pride in his work, but two his his eyesight. He can. He can see, he can turn out really pretty work on these nice guitars. How y'all doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm good. She said we've never looked at instruments or anything up close, so she well, to look at. you just make yourself at home. If I can help you with anything, just holler at me. Thank you very much. And you've been listening to Ron Lakey, and great job as always to Jesse for capturing Ron's story. And my goodness, I, I can see that scene. He had just wrecked his car, and he hears a voice, Son, can you hear me? Yes, sir. You know where you are? Well, I hope I'm at a hospital. And spiritually, he admitted, I wasn't in good shape. After that, I knew God was looking out for me. And he sang that, that beautiful song. And a, a humble story, a humble guy, and a good guy, and a country filled with good guys and gals. Ron Lakey's story here on Our American Stories, the story of a veteran, the story of a man with a disability that, well, doesn't stop him, and the story of a man who loves serving people. When that door opens, you know he just wants to hook them up with the right instrument or whatever else they need. Again, Ron Lakey's story, owner of Ron's Music Center in our little beautiful part of this great country, Oxford, Mississippi. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and today we bring you the story of Tom Ryan and Tom is a 95 year old listener of our show on KABC in Los Angeles. Tom had an unusual upbringing. He grew up on Long Island, New York, living behind a funeral parlor run by his family and he wrote a book about it entitled Love in the Ashes. Today we bring you the second of his stories for us. Something tells me there are going to be a lot more. This one is called A Grave Escape. While not a love story like the last, it's just as wild. Here's Tom. 
I was there on Saturday morning when the sheriff arrived to talk to Grandma. It was the day after the big snowstorm. My folks were away, and I had stayed with Grandma overnight. At age 10, I was too young to stay home alone, but staying at Grandma's was not too cool either, because, you see, she ran a funeral home. Sometimes there were dead bodies only a few steps from the living room at the back of the house where we watched TV. It was hard to get too relaxed when I looked over at the dark doorway leading to the bodies. That Friday night, there was a very old lady being waked in one of the chapels, Mrs. Jackson, a friend of Grandma's who had died of cancer. The sheriff sat at the kitchen table with his notebook in front of him. He asked Grandma if anything unusual had happened the last night because they were searching for an escaped convict from a prison two towns away. He is a murderer and very dangerous, the sheriff said. They were setting up roadblocks to try to catch him. Grandma didn't answer directly, but said, we have a funeral going out this morning, old Mrs. Jackson. We had to put her in a closed casket because the cancer was so bad. Will the hearse and the limos be able to get to the cemetery, Grandma asked. Yes, the sheriff replied. The road is open to the cemetery. What about anything happening last night? Grandma gave me a stern look that he couldn't see and told him nothing had happened. It was real quiet, she said. I didn't say a word, but as soon as the sheriff left, I asked her what was going on. It wasn't like Grandma to lie. She just shook her head and started to cry. I thought back about last night and remembered that shortly before dark, Grandma kept looking out the side window on the driveway every few minutes since she was expecting a delivery of new caskets. Suddenly, there were yellow headlights shining on the snow outside the window, and a loud knocking came on the side door where the caskets were brought in. Fred, the driver, shouted, I have to hurry before I get snowed in. He had unloaded two caskets and started on another one. Wait, Grandma said, I only ordered two, not three. I have to leave this one too, Fred said. I'll never get to the funeral home in the next town, and I don't want the weight on my truck. Okay, Grandma said, if it helps you out. After he was gone, Grandma closed up tight. My folks were supposed to call to see how things were, but the phone wasn't working. The TV weatherman said the lines were down all over and roads were closed, so we were all by ourselves. After a while, I started to fall asleep, and Grandma helped me upstairs and put me into a soft feather bed. She left the door open a little so some light came in. I remember that I fell asleep but woke up later when I thought I heard voices downstairs. I had started to get out of bed, but it was so cold, I crawled back in. The next morning, I asked Grandma about it, but she said I must have dreamed it. 
Later in the morning, the men who worked for Grandma came in and then loaded the casket into the hearse. When my folks came to pick me up, I saw Grandma holding onto my father's arm and talking to him. I heard her say, I need your help. She took him into the office and closed the door. I thought I heard her crying. It was five years later when Grandma died that my folks told me the real story of what had happened that Friday night. It seemed that the voices I thought I had heard were those of Grandma and the escaped convict. The caskets that were delivered that night were made by prison labor, and the convict, with the nickname of Rabbit, had hidden in one of those empty caskets. When the delivery man had left, Rabbit had opened the inside latch and let himself out of the casket. He didn't know, however, that Grandma had fallen asleep in her big chair in the living room, and she woke up startled and scared to see him standing near the fireplace, holding a large knife he had taken from the embalming room. Threatening her to silence by holding the knife under her throat, he asked for car keys and money, but Grandma didn't have a car and didn't drive. When he realized that the storm had blocked the roads and there was no phone service, he asked Grandma when someone was coming with a car. She told him that there was one funeral schedule for the next morning if the roads were open and men coming with a hearse and limousine. When he saw some of my things on the couch and found out that I was upstairs, Grandma pleaded with him to let me sleep. She would help him get in the casket with Mrs. Jackson and be taken away in the hearse the next morning to the cemetery. He could then sneak out of the casket when it was left in the cemetery storeroom for a few minutes until the family arrived. Rabbit didn't like the idea at all, especially getting into the coffin with a dead lady. He decided that he had no other choice, but he made it very clear to Grandma that if she was fooling him, and he was caught, he would escape again and kill not only her, but also all of her family. Grandma was terrified by this evil man. It was arranged that early on Saturday morning, Rabbit would get into the casket, and then Grandma would close it and latch it shut. He was very hesitant, especially when he saw and smelled old Mrs. Jackson. But finally, he climbed in, holding his nose and threatening Grandma with a painful death if things didn't work out. He also ordered Grandma to get him some hot coffee in a thermos so that he could drink it when it got cold in the casket. And she did so just before closing the lid. The plan did work. When the man came and took the casket away, and loaded it into the hearse. Grandma hadn't said anything about Rabbit being in the casket. After his private meeting with Grandma, my dad had immediately called the sheriff and arranged to stop in and see him. The police still hadn't found Rabbit, despite the roadblocks and searches of the nearby forests. They were mystified as to how he could have disappeared so completely. Sheriff, my dad said, as you know, this man was a murderer who would stop at nothing to escape. 
He told the sheriff how Rabbit had hidden in the casket at the prison and had ended up in Grandma's funeral home. He also explained how Rabbit had threatened Grandma and her family, so she was forced to help him escape in Mrs. Jackson's casket. What? said the sheriff. Why didn't she call me as soon as he was in the casket? I could have nabbed him right then and there. She was too scared, Sheriff, but my dad continued a little smile playing around his lips and pride in his voice. She was also smart enough to have slipped a large amount of sleeping pills into the coffee she gave him to drink in the casket. The Sheriff thought for a moment and said, wait, if Rabbit drank that coffee, heck, he might have been buried alive in the casket with Mrs. Jackson. The sheriff almost shouted as he got his phone out. We'll have to dig up the casket immediately. If we find him in the casket, I may have to take Grandma into custody. She could be in a lot of trouble. Wait, my dad said. Wait a minute, sheriff, before you do anything. Wait? No, no, we can't lose any more time. That man may still be alive. If there was enough air in the casket, maybe he is. The sheriff was now calling to his assistants as he rose from his chair. Get the car ready, ready to roll, and call the coroner. No, sheriff, please listen, my father replied quietly. Sit down a minute. You see, there is no casket. No casket? The sheriff looked confused. Of course there is a casket. They had the funeral, and it was buried this morning. No, my father replied quietly. You see, Sheriff, Mrs. Jackson's last wishes were that she be cremated. My goodness, it does not get better than that, folks, and that's why I say something tells me we'll be hearing more from Tom Ryan And by the way, we want your stories. And as you can tell, we don't discriminate. 95, 10 years old, the North, the South, the East, the West, Christian, atheist, we don't care. We love a good story. Tom Ryan's story, his grandma's story, my goodness, poor rabbit story, here on Our American Stories. Hi, this is Robbie, and I'm one of the new producers of Our American Stories. In my short time here, I've been able to help people tell some amazing stories, and you can find them on ouramericannetwork.org. But now it's your turn. I'd like to help you tell your story to our listeners. Just record it and send it over to yourstory at oanetwork.org. That's yourstory at oanetwork.org. Can't wait to hear it. Hey, 